Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. We're learning that Senator Dianne Feinstein has been sicker than we thought. We knew she had shingles, but we're learning that she also had encephalitis, meaning brain inflammation. The 89-year-old senator has been away from work for months. All of this raises questions about how old is too old to serve in Congress. Our panel will share their thoughts on that special number. And battling book bans, the lawsuit by parents and authors against a Florida school district that's been removing books from shelves. Freedom of speech versus parents' rights. Which one will win? But let's begin with Dianne Feinstein and questions about her fitness for office. The senator was out of work for a, for a month fighting a bout of shingles. But today, we learned she also suffered from encephalitis, inflammation of the brain, something she denied to CNN earlier today. She described it as a really bad flu. Her staff also confirmed today that she's suffering from a rare neurological disorder called Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which causes facial paralysis. The pictures of her back at work show a more frail senator than we're used to seeing. And her Senate colleagues are sidestepping questions about her health, her age, and her fitness fitness to to serve. Do you have confidence that she can continue to do this rigorous job? We're all human, and we all have health issues. And right now, she is performing as a United States senator, doing her job. Are you worried about her ability to do her job? Uh, I, I can't answer that. Well, let me, because I don't know. I have confidence in her judgment and her her family's judgment and her staff's judgment. Okay, let's bring in my panel. We have the reality checker himself, John Avalon, also former Boston TV reporter and Republican New Hampshire congressional candidate, Gail Huff-Brown, Coleman Hughes, host of Conversations with Coleman podcast and the always thoughtful and delightful New York Times reporter Emma Goldberg. Great to have all of you. Um, John, that was interesting what uh, Senator Kennedy said there. I, I have faith in her family and her staff. Why are her family and staff letting her continue to work when she is so clearly infirm? I think that's the right question. And The senators were dodging out of deference. And the Senate, obviously, the, the Senate is... Um, you know, having people in their 80s is not unusual, more than the average workplace. Um, but what Diane Feinstein is displaying is something far more troubling. Here's a really distinguished public servant, someone who was the mayor of San Francisco. Um, but she does not seem to have a clear grasp on where she is or where she has been. I don't think that, you know, it's not a stretch to say that doesn't serve the people of California well. 
Um, and, and I think there's some political considerations around the reluctance to name an appointment. She would have to resign uh, because it might have an impact on the primary. But that's a secondary concern, it seems to me. Um, this is a really extreme example of what happens when people stay in the game far too long, when for their health and dignity, uh, they should be able to enjoy uh, life not in this position of responsibility. I'm wondering if she was pushed back in. I mean, if she was pushed to come back long before she was ready. Encephalitis can be a long-lasting illness. By whom? Who would have pressured her? Well, I don't know, Chuck Schumer? Um, maybe other members who absolutely need her for a vote. You know, she's key in the Judiciary Committee. The uh, president's having a difficult time getting its nominees through. It's important to get somebody in there that can provide a vote for the Democrats and help to push through some of those nominees. Um, Coleman, how old is too old to serve in Congress? So to your point... The word senate and senile actually come from the same Latin root. Is that right? That is right. The, the, the nice, word is nice etymology senex, there. which literally means old man. So this, hmm. this idea that the elderly are who should lead us has very deep roots. And there's something to it, which is that you have experience, you've had, you've had, you have wisdom, mm-hmm. uh, but there's a limit, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it, a good question to ask is, what does the market think is the best uh, for for leadership, right? What uh, the average the age, age is the market thing? Yes. Yeah, so, like the the average CEO of a Fortune 500 company, I looked up, 57. Hmm. Uh, the median age for uh, an MLB coach uh, manager is about 50, 52. So the market seems to think the 50s are prime time for uh, a leader because you've got the experience, you got decades of wisdom, but you also still have the mental acuity, right? But in politics, there's this wait your turn mentality. Where if you run for office too young, everyone else in the world of politics looks down on you like you're skipping the line. And so we end up with with leaders that are just not in their prime. And this is what we're seeing. So interesting that you say that, Coleman, because, Emma, let's look at how old um, in terms of the current Congress, okay, which is a quite old Congress. In terms of this is how many are 75 years or older. Let me put up the list. There are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 that are 75 or older. As our youngest member of the panel, um, <laughs> what, what, do you, what are your thoughts on this? Um, maybe we need to transition from Senex to Gen X, right? <laughs> it will be time. Um, I did, you know, I, I was looking it up as well and Over 50% of Congress is made up of boomers and the silent generation. And I think we also need to think about, you know, who has the greatest stake in some of the public policy issues that are on the table? I mean, think about who's going to be living on this planet um, that's wrecked by climate change. Who's going to be really feeling the ramifications of artificial intelligence and social media? I think young people have a lot of um, both particular insight and particular energy when it comes to thinking about how to innovate and regulate some of the most urgent issues that are facing us. And I think one of the, you know, motivating issues this week is that we're all seeing the images that are coming out of of Feinstein's return. I saw an exchange between, you know, reporters at the LA Times who were asking her about her return and she seemed to indicate that she hadn't even thought she'd been gone. Yeah. So I think there are um, real questions here about mental acuity and physical fitness, but then also about who can really bring the energy um, and, and the imagination that's needed to govern on some of the fast-moving issues that are going to affect um, Gen Z and millennials. 
So are we comfortable with an age limit? Is that what we're suggesting? No, I, I think there's a lot of different ways to be 75. There are a lot of different ways to be 80. Um, but when, when you have someone in a position of real power representing you know, the most populous state in the nation, uh, having a hard time locating herself, saying you know, she, she was not, in fact, out of work, look, th- that's just cruel. That's unkind. It is not It is not respecting the dignity of the service she has given to date. So as long as somebody is is crisp and clear, you know, at some point there's diminishing returns. But we should be focusing more on 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 less people being in office for decades. That itself is ossified. Term limits. I'm all for term limits. I, I think that we how need long? term limits. For how long? Well, to be a senator. Three uh, for Senate, two. Two terms. 12? You think 12 years? Yep. And for for Congress, three. And it, does that, would you rather, you'd rather see that than an age limit? Or do you yes. also like the idea? No, no, of no. Limit? I would rather see term limits because I think I, that would automatically help to, to keep, you know, people from spending. Yeah, I, I, I think, I think both the, that, that may be too limited a time, but I think also that would create, the power would all be in the staff. That would create then a permanent government in the part of the staff if there's that mm-hmm. high a turnover. What do you think? I don't think lots so. Lots of places and lots of jobs have mandatory retirement ages. Other countries in Europe do it differently. You can't be president before, what, you're 35? Mm-hmm. No one seems uncomfortable with there being an age limit on the younger side for some reason, but the notion that there could be an age limit on, on the older side is like somehow people lose their minds. I think that that would be a pretty uh, equitable and, and wise way to deal with the issue. I think you'd also but it should face be pretty some high. discrimination, I don't think it should be 75. I, mean, I think 75 is way ageism too young, is you know? a real issue, too. 80, maybe. And like yeah. you said, you know, to, to your point, an 80-year-old in one person could be very different mm-hmm. from an 80-year-old in another person. Yeah. My mother's 84, and she's younger than me. So, <laughs> <laughs> How does that happen? How does that work? Um, yeah, okay. I mean, and so what's, so, so last time, what's going to happen with Diane Feinstein? What's going to happen here? What's going to happen next? I think that's what a lot of people are wondering. And I think people are also thinking about this as a little bit of an indication of what comes next. You know, how do we incentivize young people to feel empowered to run for office? And I think, you know, when young people look at Congress and the visual they have, resembles their grandparents. I don't know that that's the most motivating image. All right. Thank you all very much for all of that. You clearly haven't seen my grandparents. (laughs) (laughs) We'd like a photo. Um, Next, Walgreens will pay San Francisco nearly $230 million for its role in the city's opioid epidemic. But can they use that money to fix what the mayor calls brazen open-air drug dealing? We'll discuss that. All right, the city of San Francisco has reached a $230 million settlement with Walgreens for its role in the distribution of opioids. A federal judge ruled that the pharmacy chain could be held liable for contributing to the city's opioid epidemic. Joining us now is David Chu, the San Francisco city attorney. Mr. Chu, thank you so much for being here. Can you just explain why Walgreens? Because I think we're all familiar with the role that uh, Purdue Pharma had, the role that unscrupulous doctors had. But isn't Walgreens, isn't a pharmacy just following doctors' orders when they fill your prescription? Well, you know, one would think, but there were many companies that were involved in creating this opioid crisis. Um, what we discovered as we brought this lawsuit against Walgreens and others is that Walgreens played a significant role in pushing patients to uh, to consume the prescription opioids that they got addicted to. They pressured their pharmacists to fill, fill, fill their prescriptions, and that came from 
corporate hierarchy. They were chasing billions of dollars of profit over safety. And in that time period, they were not in compliance with federal law. Um, so this is why they absolutely have played a role uh, in this opioid crisis that we see playing out on our streets every day. I mean, I know this is a moot point because the city won and Walgreens has to pay. But here is Walgreens' statement. They said, Walgreens disputes liability and there is no admission of fault in the settlement agreement. We never manufactured or marketed opioids, nor did we distribute them to pill mills and Internet pharmacies. Um, Did you want them uh, to admit fault in this? I think the fact that they have agreed to pay our city $230 million says what it needs to say. It's the largest single award for any city in the country by one single opioid defendant. Uh, It came after a trial where a federal judge, uh, in his opinion, documented exactly what Walgreens did in violating the law and being part of this cycle of addiction. Um, The fact of the matter is, you know, we see the suffering on our streets every day all across America. It's easy to blame the folks who are right in front of us. But it's important to remember that there were some of the most profitable companies in the world that engineered this health crisis, that engineered this cycle of addiction. In terms of the rampant drug use, that people have seen on the streets of San Francisco. How much can you attribute to Walgreens? And the reason I ask is because Mayor London Breed uh, wrote a letter. This was in March of 2023. Uh, She said she was most concerned about drug dealing on the streets, describing dealers as becoming increasingly aggressive with police, ambassadors, other city workers and residents with violence and shootings surrounding, quote, brazen open air drug dealing scenes. So that sounds like it's beyond Walgreens. Well, certainly drug dealers play a very significant role in this in in providing the supply of drugs. But the demand, I would suggest, was really cultivated by the opioid industry. And I'll explain why. So when we talk about the cycle of addiction, there's a direct connection between the addictions we're seeing on our streets today and what happened some years ago in the 1990s when companies created very dangerous and addictive prescription opioids. They manufactured this crisis of undiagnosed pain. They marketed these products as safe. They were lying. There were millions of Americans, an entire generation that got addicted to prescription opioids. They abused them. And then they shifted to street drugs like heroin and fentanyl. In the trial, we admitted evidence that 70 to 80% of their heroin users on our streets began their addictions with prescription opioids. And that's exactly what Walgreens was pushing. Also in the trial, it came out that Walgreens had over 1.2 million prescriptions just in our city alone that should have been red flagged under the law, but they looked the other way to chase their profits. And as a result, addicted members of our community, our brothers and sisters, our fathers and mothers to this. And that is what is causing the suffering on our streets, the addicts on our streets who are consuming heroin and fentanyl today. And last, Mr. Chu, uh, I've read that the city of San Francisco estimates it could cost $8.1 billion to abate the crisis. How will $230 million spread over 14 years solve that? Well, I should mention um, we have actually at this time a total of over $350 million of settlements from a variety of companies. But I'll also say this, that there is no amount of money that will bring back the lives that we have lost. We have all experienced these tragedies. We mourn every day for those we have lost. But this is money, hundreds of millions of dollars, that will help to address the suffering that we're seeing and hopefully help us to turn the corner uh, of this opioid crisis.
David Chu, thank you very much for all the information. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. We're back now with John Avalon, Gail Huff-Brown, Coleman Hughes, and Emma Goldberg. Um, so, Coleman, your thoughts? Yeah, so I've, you know, I have a family member who has had surgeries and been prescribed oxy, OxyContin once in 2020, once in 2022, or actually 2019. And in 2019, she got OxyContin and after just uh, a, a few days, went off of it and had withdrawal symptoms. Mm. Right? And the doctor, the surgeon, nobody warned her that this was going to happen. And it happened that fast. Cut to last year, had a similar surgery, got less oxy this time. And when I was picking it up at the pharmacy, the pharmacist had a whole protocol. Right? I couldn't get it immediately. There had to be a double and a triple check. That, so it seems like things are changing in the right direction. And this lawsuit is a part of that. What, what, it, what really disturbs me is not that um, big pharma didn't do its due diligence. I think no one's surprised by that. What really disturbs me is that the fact-finding in this lawsuit suggests that a lot, a lot of doctors are overprescribing drugs because they are somehow getting kickbacks. Not just like 1% of doctors. Like, right, he said 1.2 million, right? So you do the math. That had to be a lot of doctors that are essentially corrupt. And how do you trust your doctor after a finding like this? Um, Gail, this was in San Francisco. You're in New Hampshire. It is no stranger. No, no stranger at all. In fact, New Hampshire got $310 million uh, over 18 years. And I will say the money does help. There's no question about it. What do they it. apply to? Like, are these to, to rehabs? What do they put the money to? The money goes to programs, to rehab. It goes to communities because the people shouldering this are the firefighters, the EMTs. The, I interviewed a firefighter in uh, Colebrook, New Hampshire, who had been to the same house over a dozen times to resuscitate with Narcan the same woman who ultimately died of a, a drug overdose, uh, opioid-related. And it's, it's tragic. These are the people that are seeing it day in and day out. A lot of the money goes to help these communities that are hiring more people, that have to buy the Narcan and, you know, be able to, to help. But it's, it's a desperate problem. But I'll tell you, money isn't the only solution. You have to have family support. You have to have people around you. I think a lot of these people, they just don't have that support system. And they end up in rehab for a month, and then they're back out. Two months later, they're back at it again. And, and, and I think, you know, San Francisco in some ways has become the poster child for that kind of civic chaos that gets created in the wake of the combination of drug addiction, hopelessness, homelessness, um, and, and, and creating civic disorder. But, but I do think there's a real question about where this money is going to go in the case of San Francisco. Mm. It's not going to make a dent in the larger issue. But, you know, throwing money at problems, unless it's targeted, it just gets absorbed back in the coffers. There are a lot of municipal costs that come from drug addiction uh, of, of this sort, this epidemic. Meaning what Gail's talking about, the firefighters. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, ER docs and everything else. But but how the money's going to be used is really the question. Because if it's just going to get reabsorbed into the, the budget, it's not going to make a dent in dealing with the underlying problem. True. I mean, I do have to think that every dollar toward these toward these problems is enormously helpful, especially because, I mean, when you're looking at a crisis of this magnitude, it's so challenging to even conceive of what does accountability look like? Like, there's so many individuals and so many corporations and, and groups that contributed to this crisis being at the scale that it is today. And so I think any moment in any situation in which we can get some form of accountability and some money on the table toward the services people desperately need, especially in a 
place like San Francisco. I mean, even since the start of this year, 268 people have died of, of, over, of accidental overdoses. That's 72 more than the year before that. So this problem is actually continuing to grow larger. And I think any moment that we have where we can, you know, have some form of accountability um, and, and some dollars behind that is, is a step in the right direction. I think it's a question of how it's targeted, what it's being used for. The, the assumption that it's going to go directly to solving that problem is, is an assumption. I've not been able to find documentation. We know there are cases where large dollar amounts are given to larger, more specific problems, and they don't tend to make a dent in it. So it's really a question of how it's going to be deployed. Is it going to be targeted or not? I just, I would say, what's the alternative that the money, you know, Here's isn't distributed? Refund the police. <laughs> San Francisco has had one of the worst records in the past three years in terms of soft on crime, mm-hmm. uh, mass retirements, police force shrinking, people getting their car, their house broken into over and over and over again, and the police don't come. Refund, refund the police. I like that. That would be targeted. All right. On that note, thank you all very much. A new lawsuit is targeting a Florida school district over the removal of books on race and identity issues from school libraries. Book publisher Penguin Random House, along with several parents, authors, and the free speech advocacy group Pen America, filed the suit against the Escambia County School District. The suit argues that school officials violated the First Amendment in restricting access to books. Here with me now is Pen America CEO Suzanne Nossel. Uh, Ms. Nossel, thanks so much for being here. Tell us the grounds for this lawsuit. Sure. This case is emblematic of what we are seeing in a pattern across the country. We have hundreds of books that have been challenged by a single individual, one person lodging a kind of summary challenge, clearly not even having read these books. And that initiates a process whereby in Escambia County, there's a review committee that reads the book, that deliberates over whether the book should be on the classroom shelves. And there are case after case where that committee agreed that the book had value, that this was something children should have access to, that kids could benefit from these stories. But nonetheless, the school board overrode their decision, took the books off the shelves, and is denying kids their freedom to read. And so it's part of a pattern we're seeing across the country, and we wanted to take action and Mm. challenge this. We're challenging it under the First and Fourteenth Amendments. Can you tell us some of the titles of these books that students have lost access to? Are these books that we would know? Are they generally new books? Are they generally books about transgender students? Is there a way to categorize them? You know, it's a long list. I mean, there are authors like Toni Morrison on the list, like Judy Bloom. Uh, there are books like Entango Makes Three, which is a story of two penguins in the Central Park Zoo, uh, two male penguins that come together to raise an orphan baby penguin. And we do see a clear trend, and it's part of our our case, is that these books overwhelmingly are by and about authors of color and LGBTQ narratives. So it shows clear intent on the part of this district to exclude certain stories, to target particular populations, and essentially erase them from these libraries. What do you say to parents who say that they want to have that this is about parental rights? They want to have control over what their um, children are exposed to. You can have control over what 
books kids bring home. But what this is, is taking the opinion of a, a single, it's not even a parent and the, when it comes to most of these challenges, it's actually a teacher in the school and having that person essentially dictate what 37,000 kids in a school district can and can't read. That, you know, that is a matter of parental rights. It's the rights of all these other parents that are really in jeopardy here. Um, what do you want out of the Escambia School District? What are you fighting for here? Sure. We want to affirm the principle that book banning uh, violates the First Amendment, that book banning, when it targets people of color. We want the books put back on shelves. We want to vindicate kids' freedom to read. The idea that books are dangerous, that kids in American public schools are being taught that Books are going to imperil them or corrupt them. You know, that is not how we educate a democratic citizenry. And we really uh, think it's important that the court affirm those principles. Well, I have you. I want to ask you about Salman Rushdie, because he has made his first public in-person appearance since being attacked. And he was presented with the Courage Award at the annual literary gala for PEN America. So tell us about that. What did he say? Well, it was very moving, Allison. Salman has been very close to PEN America for decades. And when he was attacked last summer, it was devastating. Many months went by. We didn't know if we'd see him again, what kind of condition he would be in. So he came tonight to greet everyone. He gave a powerful message about his commitment to the organization. We gave him an award for courage. He said, the real courage is not me, but it's those who leapt to the stage at Chautauqua when he was attacked and saved his life and pinned down his attacker. And he implored all of us to not give in to terror, to those who would strike fear, to those who seek to intimidate, and to stand up and continue to speak our truth. And it was an enormously powerful moment for all of our supporters and for free speech defenders from around the world. Suzanne Nossel, thank you for your time tonight and explaining to us what's happening. Thanks so much, Allison. Okay. Charles Barkley going off on Ja Morant, the NBA player suspended for a second time for appearing to flash a gun. You're going to want to hear this. We'll play it for you next. Charles Barkley, never one to hold back his opinions, is criticizing Memphis Grizzlies guard Ja Morant and the people defending him over his latest gun incident. An Instagram Live video on Sunday showed Morant, a rising star in the NBA, flashing a gun. The Grizzlies then suspended him from all team activities pending a review of the incident. Here's Barkley's message to Morant. When you're making $100 million a year, to play sports, your life changes. There are certain rules and regulations you have to live by, plain and simple. You can't do stupid stuff. That's the trade-off. Now, if you want to do all that stuff and give all that money back, more power to you. You can make that stance. You know what? I want to do what I want to do. I want to flash my gun and make videos and do things. Okay, that's fine. But you can't make money on the NBA doing this stuff. I, I just hope that he grows up and realizes, like, yo, man, first of all, you're not a thug. You're not a criminal. You're not a crook. You're a guy making $100 million a year to dribble a stupid. 200. 200 million to dribble a stupid basketball. 100 million, 200. 
<laughs> you know, details. Uh, in, in March, Morant was suspended by the league for eight games without pay after another video was posted showing him holding a gun at a Colorado nightclub. I'm back with John and Coleman. Okay, Coleman, your thoughts here? More important than the amount of money he makes is that when, when you're in the NBA, you are a role model yeah. to you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of kids all around the world. I know when I was a kid, I, I very much looked up to basketball players. And to, to set that kind of an example for them, that's really what is most galling about this. I do hope that he grows. Uh, I think he will. And if he does, he should absolutely have the chance to come back in the fold. Um, but for now, he does have to face consequences. Here's what he said, John. I know I've disappointed a lot of people who have supported me. This is a journey, and I recognize there is more work to do. My words may not mean much right now, but I take full responsibility for my actions. I'm committed to continuing to work on myself. So, I mean, it's legal to have a gun. Mm-hmm. Why can't he have one? Well, that, that's actually what Charles Barkley was getting at, right? You know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Uh, and, and it gets to the point about, you know, with great power, with great privilege— comes responsibility. You know, the guy, guy has a contract that's just under $200 million for five years. Um, and because he's in a position where he's a role model, whether he wants to be one or not, it means you, you, you give up certain liberties. You know, yes, you have a constitutional right to, to you know, carry a fire, firearm, flash it around. But it's not consistent with the responsibilities he has as a role model. Maybe that's the journey he's talking about. But, to, you know, and you could point out that politicians do this all too much. They brandish their guns and set a bad example, too. Fair enough. Um, but you got to start somewhere. So, you know, John Morant, you know, if you want to take that dough, Charles Barkley saying, you know, you don't, you, don't, you don't flash your firearm all over the joint. John Coleman, thank you both very much. Okay, coming up, some of our top reporters are here to talk about the stories they're working on for tomorrow, including the feud between Ron DeSantis and Disney. We're with them next. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters here with me tonight. Jeremy Diamond, Elena Treen, Miguel Marquez and Sarah Fisher. Great to have all of you here on the couch. Okay, so we begin with body camera footage of yet another mass shooting in America, this one in New Mexico. The video that you're about to see is, of course, disturbing. You're going to hear a lot of gunfire, and this shows the moment that a police sergeant in northern New Mexico was shot after responding to the scene. This happened Monday in Farmington after an 18-year-old high schooler shot nine people in his neighborhood, killing three of them. Let's go first to CNN's Josh Campbell, who's been covering this story. Um, Josh, thanks for being here. So just walk us through what we just saw on that video. Hey, Allison, so police held a press conference just earlier today, and the chief described this mass shooting as an assault on his community after this 18-year-old just opened fire on this neighborhood indiscriminately. And they walked us through the timeline. This started when 79-year-old Shirley Voida was driving through the neighborhood. The suspect just opens fire out of nowhere. She falls out of her vehicle. Police say that two other elderly women were driving by. They stopped to try to render aid. They are fatally shot. He continues on this rampage. And I warn you, our viewers that what you're about to see is disturbing. We see police gathering together, forming what's called a contact team. They see the shooter. They're tracking him. This is the moment that they ultimately take him down. Watch. 
Get back inside, people! Now, Allison, two officers were shot in that exchange with gunfire. This is the latest example underscoring the dangerous nature of this profession. And, you know, it's important to point out we're coming up on one year since that fatal shooting at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. That obviously a colossal failure by law enforcement in Texas. There are families there who are still demanding transparency from the police. But as you look at all these other examples across the country, it's important to point out whether it's, you know, San Jose, California, Louisville, Nashville, Duncanville, Texas, Allen, Texas. Now the latest example in New Mexico we also see time and time again these officers disregarding their own safety to go to try to stop this gunman. That's what we see here in New Mexico in this really chilling video. Yeah, I'm so glad you point that out. Since, since Uvalde, we've seen so many acts of bravery, of course, on the part of police, which they do every day. So you, Josh, asked the police chief about the arsenal of weapons that the suspect had. Do you know how he got them? Do you know if any family members could be charged here? Yeah, so police say that they're still looking into the motive. The suspect's family, this 18-year-old, they told us that he had some kind of mental health issues. And, of course, that is what we hear time and time again in so many of these shootings. The question is, if they knew that he had mental health problems, how was he able to obtain these weapons? We're told that two of the weapons, police say, were owned by a family member. One weapon that he had was an AR-15 that he bought just about a month after his 18th birthday. Now, as you mentioned, I asked the police chief, will other family members, whoever owned those guns, part of that arsenal that the suspect had access to, could they be charged? The police chief told me that uh, at this point they, they don't, they're not planning to charge anyone else, but they're continuing to gather information. And he says that everything right now is on the table. That's important to note because, again, as we see in so many of these cases, police will obviously go after the gunman, the suspect, but we've seen a, a greater effort by police and prosecutors to also look at who helped equip these people. If they knew that there were issues, if they knew that this person could be dangerous and deadly, how could they give them access to weapons? Certainly a major question in this case. Okay, Josh, thank you very much for all that. Jeremy, I want to turn to you because President Biden has often come out and talked about how exasperated he is, as everybody is, with the state of all of these mass shootings. Has he done everything? I mean, he's called on Congress to act. Yeah. Um, has he done everything that he can in his executive action power? Well, well, that's what the president says. And and when you look at what the president, let's talk first about what he's actually done on guns, right? Because he did sign the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which was the most significant piece of legislation uh, on on guns in in several decades. Um, It it incentivized red flags. It uh, funded uh, mental health uh, funding for for states. Um, And the president has signed nearly two dozen executive orders on this. But this is also a president who describes this issue as a crisis, right? And he says that he has now reached the extent of his executive action. And every time one of these shootings happen, we do see him come out with a statement, a very forceful statement. But I've pressed the White House on this before. Do you feel like you're using the bully pulpit to the fullest extent? To the fullest extent for something that you describe as an ongoing crisis in America. And I think it's clear that, look, when one of these shootings happens, it gets in the news. You hear the president talk about it. But you're not seeing him go out there day in and day out talking about it in the way that you might with something that you describe as a crisis. Okay, let's talk about something else that people are calling a crisis. And we talk about this every night here, but I'm looking forward to you giving me an update here so that yes. we can get out of this vicious cycle. The debt A couple ceiling. more weeks, Allison. No, I'm, I gotta... not, I'm not doing it, Jeremy, no. <laughs> the debt ceiling, where are we? 
Yeah, look, uh, both sides seem to be coming out today and say that they do see progress. Uh, the, the talks are happening now at a high level between uh, top White House officials and uh, a deputy to uh, the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. The thing is also that this is still looming over President Biden's foreign trip right now. He is currently abroad in Japan, and you already see reporters asking him questions about this. But interestingly, what you also heard was a senior administration official today in a briefing with reporters offer a pretty blunt assessment of the impact that this is having on the United States standing in the world. He said this, uh, debt ceiling brinksmanship that Republicans are diving, are driving in Washington, D.C., undermines American leadership, undermines the trustworthiness that America can bring to not just our allies and partners, but to the rest of the world. And so when you think about that, the president has talked previously about the impact uh, that default would have on the U.S.'s standing abroad, but clearly already just the threat, just the very logjam in Washington, D.C., is already having, according to this senior administration official, an impact on the U.S.'s ability to leave. Mm-hmm. Now, nonetheless, the president does have an opportunity tomorrow, or actually a few hours from now in, in Japan, to show that U.S. leadership is still there. And he's going to do that on Ukraine in particular. And on that, uh, he's got a series of new sanctions, 300 new sanctions on Russia for its role in Ukraine, export controls, all of this, of course, in coordination with those G7 allies. And the United States really has been central to that effort uh, to do those sanctions. These are live pictures right now of the president in uh, Hiroshima, Japan. As you guys know, he had to cut his some of his trips short because of the debt ceiling uh, crisis. So, you know, it's interesting to hear Jeremy talk because there are these big crises from gun violence to the debt ceiling that even as the president of the United States, you can only do so much. Yeah, and that tough balance between trying to manage all the domestic problems and foreign affairs. When he's at a G7 conference like this, they are not thinking about what's happening to our gun crisis or our mental health crisis here in the U.S. He's forced to pivot and think about all these other things, the war in Ukraine, tensions with China, et cetera. And to balance those two agendas is really hard, especially when Congress is not really working with you to get a lot done. You have a bipartisan a partisan split. It becomes very difficult. I will add, though, that I do think the debt ceiling potential crisis of this is looming over this trip in the sense of it will impact all of these other countries. I know that it's something that foreign leaders are very much watching very closely because if the government defaults on its debt, which would happen, which would be the first time in history that ever happened, it would have economic impacts across, you know, across the globe. And so it is something that I think is undermining this trip in some ways and also undermining some of his conversations with other foreign leaders. Do you think that that decision of him to cut the trip short is telegraphing that something is coming or is that just telling the world we're taking this seriously, we're going to be home. It's both. And and that is one of the things that we have heard from White House officials in in terms of why he cut the trip short, that it shows the U.S.'s commitment, that it shows President Biden's commitment to ensuring the U.S.'s creditworthiness going forward and and the financial stability of the global economy. What it also signals is that this is a deal that's going to come down to Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy. Uh, and I had a new piece today you with my colleague. You have new reporting uh, on, the, on their relationship. Yeah. Tell us about that behind the scenes. It, it, look, this is the relationship that is going to make this deal. And as of now, it is a largely untested relationship, an underdeveloped relationship. Um, these are two men who are from different generations, who are ideologically opposed, and who don't have any of the personal chemistry that Joe Biden and, say, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, uh, have, because they haven't spent decades together in Congress. Um, and, and, and frankly, uh, Senator Roger Wicker, he really summed the relationship up well to my colleague Lauren Fox when he said, 
Uh, well, it would help if McCarthy and Biden were golf buddies, but they aren't and they were never going to be. <laughs> and that is where things stand. Now, look, personal relationships aren't everything, right? I think the two leaders understand the stakes of this for the global economy. But nonetheless, this is Washington and, and relationships do matter. And also, interestingly, these are two men who both really thrive on the idea that politics is personal. We've seen Kevin McCarthy take that approach in the House. We've seen President Biden take that approach with Congress and also with foreign leaders. And yet here we are at a moment where this is going to come down to these two men who don't know each other all that well. Now, that being said, just this last quick point, the first meeting that they had a week ago over the debt ceiling was pretty frosty. There were some sharp exchanges between the two of them. But I'm told that this latest meeting was far more cordial between the two men and that both sides seem interested in resolving this. I think it's interesting that you say that they're both these people who prize their personal relationships and who are sort of extroverted and and get energy from the politicking of it all. And so if they're stylistically the same, they should be able to have a closer relationship if they're similar in that way. But they also have a lot at stake with their own parties. I mean, Kevin McCarthy isn't just doing this with President Biden. He has to take this package and sell it to his party, including a lot of very conservative members. I mean, we saw the House Freedom Caucus today issue a statement saying that they shouldn't be negotiating at all and they should just be passing the bill that Republicans pass. And Biden is having that problem on the left as well with people, Democrats in his party saying you should consider the 14th Amendment and not budge on negotiations. And I think that's the key here is it's not just these men in the room who are negotiating. It's their entire parties who have to pass this. And and there's no scenario where four, five, six centrist Republicans come over to Democrats and they can force a vote. I mean, that, that is the, like, plan Z, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and, and that is something that the, the House Minority Leader, Hakeem Jeffries, has set up. He has set up this, this uh, process for a discharge petition, which would essentially bypass the Speaker's control of the floor, allowing them to bring up a bill. But it is a highly, highly unlikely scenario uh, and really kind of a last-ditch situation. If we come to June 1st and there's no deal, perhaps they try that. But discharge petitions are rarely, rarely successful. All right, friends, thank you very much for all of that reporting. Up next, Disney is upping the ante in its battle with Governor Ron DeSantis. And it's going to cost the state of Florida 2,000 jobs. Elena is going to explain all of this for us next. Disney is scrapping a $1 billion plan to build an office complex in Florida. This is the latest battle in its war with Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. The new building would have brought in 2,000 jobs to the state with an average salary of $120,000. Disney says given the considerable changes that have occurred since the announcement of this project, including new leadership, and changing business conditions, we have decided not to move forward with the construction of the campus. Elena is following this story for us. This feud has just gotten real. Like, they have been feuding and there's been a war of words, but now there's this has real-world impact on real employees and real money for the state. How is... I mean, is Governor DeSantis now rethinking this feud? How's he reacted to it? Oh, he's leaning in. He is leaning in. And he's not shying away from this fight with Disney. And I know from even talking to some of his advisors that it's something that he's also planning to continue to rail against 
on the campaign trail. But he did. A spokesperson for DeSantis released a statement tonight. It reads, uh, you have basically three people at this point that are credible in this whole thing. Mr. DeSantis told donor. Oh, I'm sorry. I think we have the wrong statement here. Oh, um, I have a copy here. Though. The right statement from the spokesperson is that uh, it said Disney announced the possibility of a Lake Nona campus nearly two years ago. Nothing ever came of the project, and the state was unsure whether it would come to fruition. Given the company's financial straits, falling market cap, and declining stock price, it is unsurprising that they would restructure their business operations and cancel unsuccessful, unsuccessful ventures. So that's from DeSantis's team. Again, just leaning into this fight. Um, and really, I mean, where this all stems from, this is going way back now, like back to uh, 2020, 2021, um, when DeSantis... Obviously, culture wars is a big thing that he leans into. Um, a lot of this has to do with him railing against wokeness, thinking Disney is promoting things that children shouldn't be learning about, um, similar to what he talks about, about learning in the classrooms. And then it also goes to Disney having their own little tax island in Florida, something that he is very against and finds to be unfair. And so, um, and it really is coming to a head today. And we saw that with with Disney deciding that they were going to close this down. Um, one other thing I will point out, though, just on the Disney side of this, is I was talking with uh, our colleague Steve Contorno, who's been following this case very closely, and we were saying that we think a lot of this is also Disney kind of scapegoating DeSantis for this. Uh, so they really weren't going to go through with the office building? That's what it appeared to be. So they had a, they fired their old CEO, last year. And that would, this was kind of his project. And then Bob Iger is back in as chief executive. And he's kind of been against this project for a long time. And so um, I think some of this is really being able to use the politics with DeSantis and the animosity between Disney and Florida, or Florida Republicans, I should say, as a way to kind of, you know, play this off as more political than it is um, part of a business decision. A bigger picture. I can't imagine this This helps. I mean, he he did well with the don't say gay stuff, and he he sort of got his support together down there. Uh, but going after the mouse and the, and the business, just the money alone and how big Disney is for I Florida. I can't imagine that most Florid- Floridians think this is a really great idea. No, it's true. Also, I mean, not just most Floridians, another big Floridian uh, in politics, Donald Trump. He issued a statement on this uh, railing against Ron DeSantis saying it it was not a good idea and that he made a mistake. He's been in an era with this. Uh, this Trump statement reads, let me make sure I have it. Uh, he says, today, Ron DeSantis single-handedly lost the state of Florida nearly $1 billion in investment and over 2,000 jobs with an average salary of $120,000 because he was too weak to fight for the state. Ron DeSantis failed War on Disney has done little for his limping shadow campaign and is now doing even less for Florida's economy. So Donald Trump agrees with you. (laughs) (laughs) Let's also be honest here, though. Like if Trump had picked this fight, like he would be singing a very different tune and he would have he would have gone all the way in the same way that DeSantis has. And and to me, I, I say that because. This whole DeSantis-Disney fight really tells you everything you need to know about the evolution of the Republican Party, right? When you think about the Republican Party of 10, 15, 20 years ago, this was the party of business, pro-business party, right? And yes, of course, there was always that culture wars aspect, but now that culture wars aspect has taken over the party entirely and completely pushed aside uh, this this pro-business mindset. And, and I think this Disney-DeSantis fight is, is emblematic what, of that what's evolution. What's the end game? 
Well, it's also changed corporate America because it used to be that if you would create jobs, especially at the local level, you were heralded in politics. And now Disney employs 80,000 people in Florida, and that's not enough for Ron DeSantis just because Disney railed against him for one bill. That's a completely different ballgame for corporate America. And we had to deal with different companies. Trump, during the Trump era, one tweet can send your entire stock array. This kind of indicates that no matter who is going to be in presidency a nomination for the Republican Party, whether it's DeSantis or Trump, this party is no longer the pro-corporate party that you were saying, Jeremy Diamond, and that is a huge shift in America. And so is DeSantis about to launch his presidential campaign in earnest? Yes. When so we have some new reporting on oh. this, actually. So uh, he's reporting. He is expected to enter formally enter the presidential race next week. He's uh, our sources are telling us that he's expected to file uh, with the FEC, which is really, you know, the most tangible way that you can do this and soft launch his campaign in his um, hometown in Florida as well. Um, And this is a huge development. I mean, obviously, everyone's kind of already been referring to Ron DeSantis as Donald Trump's biggest competitor in the 2024 race um, and treating him like he's already in the race. But this is going to change things. I know when I've spoke to some people on his team that uh, he's because he's not running for president officially, he's been actually holding back on some of his attacks against Donald Trump. As much as Donald Trump has been criticizing him fiercely, repeatedly, um, he's done so or defended himself in a more veiled way. We have seen him ramp up, though. But, well, I mean, why hold back? Why hold back because he's not There's so much time. Yeah, Yeah, why hold back? Well, a part of it was that because he's still governor, because he's still trying to show, like, one of his big things, Ron DeSantis' big things, was that he needed to finish out... um, the policy term as governor before he formally launched. And I think he was trying to, he wants to have a very hard shift to campaign DeSantis versus Governor DeSantis. And so I do think that we're going to see a lot of, um, a lot of this get more nasty very quickly. How quickly, you know, for these two contenders, what is the delta between the two? Is it that Donald Trump is that far ahead of polling than Ron DeSantis? Are the two of them that far ahead of everybody else, like the Nikki Haley? Where does the landscape stand? So um, Donald Trump is definitely the front runner. Uh, he's pretty far ahead in polling. And then right behind, not right behind him, but second is Ron DeSantis. And then I don't have the numbers with me, but um, he's not trailing too far behind Donald Trump. But there is a good gap there. And then... Uh, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, other uh, 6%. Tim Scott, yeah, much lower down in the polling. And so um, they really are seen as the two people that will be vying for this. And I do think it's still so early, so you can't rely that heavily on polls right now. But I do think that Ron DeSantis getting into the race, being on the campaign trail, it's going to be very interesting to watch, especially because if you look at what he's done in Florida, he's really been able to control the media narrative around him. He's created a bit of an echo chamber with who he'll speak to, the interviews that he gives. That's not going to fly on the national stage. And that's going to be a very difficult thing that he has to face. And it will be interesting to see what, if you're right, that he's ramping up his attacks on Donald Trump, what that sounds like. When right. he, when he yeah. is ready to do that. All right, friends, thank you very much for all of that. The Supreme Court hands major victories to Twitter and Google over content published on their platforms. Sarah's going to explain the court's decision and why they are a win for big tech. We'll see if it's a win for us. <laughs> big victories for big tech. 
the Supreme Court shielding Twitter from liability over accusations that it aided and abetted terrorism when it hosted tweets created by ISIS. That decision was unanimous. The court also dismissed a case against Google that argued that YouTube, which Google owns, used algorithms to promote ISIS videos to users. Legal experts had warned that these two lawsuits could have upended the Internet as we know it. Sarah is here to explain what all this means. What does this mean for our lives, these decisions? Honestly, it means your life is going to stay the same, which is probably pretty (laughs) good. So the Supreme Court, I was shocked even was going to look at these cases because the role of the Supreme Court is to interpret complex laws. This law is not complex. It's 27 words, and it basically says, or 26 words, that tech platforms are not liable for third-party content on their platforms. If the Congress were to ever reverse this law, which is really what's probably going to happen. You know, the Supreme Court is deciding to punt this down out of the court system. Congress would have to pass a new law. And by the way, they're so far from that, they don't have a replacement. But if they were to change it, what would it mean for us? It would dramatically change our lives. Think about how many things you use online where you are looking at content that other people post, TripAdvisor, checking out food on Yelp, reviews for hotels, Even comment sections and news websites, all of that would likely go away because these companies don't want to get sued in case somebody puts up terrorist content or something else. So for now, the Internet remains the same as we know it. But the fact that we're even having this conversation sort of shows you that all the people that make our our country work, policymakers, regulators, enforcers, they're thinking about how we might have to change it. Right, because don't we always talk about how we do want better content moderation because we're all, and our kids, are all seeing horrible things that they shouldn't be seeing? We are. And, you know, I think where this is going, Allison, is that instead of trying to do it with a blunt force, meaning just get rid of a law, change a law dramatically, can we implement small changes, small laws that will incentivize or push tech companies to make their content moderation stronger? One of the things that Congress is talking about a lot is could we pass bills that force tech companies to be more transparent about their algorithms? Then maybe we can moderate content better, but we're not shielding them from the liability that protects their business models and allows us to use the internet as it is. I think that's the direction where we're going. Because like how much how much money do these companies spend actually moderating the content? Because if the idea is to incentivize it, they must not be doing enough, right? They spend a lot, but the problem is it's a small amount compared to how much they make in profits. If you take a company like Meta for example, you know, typically if you're looking at how much revenue they bring in, in a year, it's like 130 billion dollars. Google is even bigger than that, over $200 billion. And so, yes, companies like that are, have tens of thousands of people who are working on you know, safety and security. But that's a tiny little portion of the money they bring in. And I think that's why people who are frustrated that big tech isn't doing enough are mad because they're saying, yes, I know you're doing a lot, but you could be doing more. But the bad actors or those people who want that content, they're, they're always going to get around that. I mean, that's at the end of the day, people are not people who want to use the internet for ill will and, and, and illegal gains are going to do that. Yes, yes, thank you. I appreciate you saying that because something that's been frustrating to me is that a lot of bills in Congress are designed to go after two platforms, which is Meta sure. and Google. And if you take a look at where a lot of the bad actors are moving, it's to these teeny little niche chat platforms like Telegram or Discord. Or even and video games. Yes, gaming, exactly. And so these laws aren't even really addressing some of those platforms where a lot of the nefarious activity is moving. And so my hope is that Congress can start to think about this from a more holistic perspective, passing laws that would apply to you know most tech companies instead of going after just two big ones, not because they shouldn't be held accountable, but because the bad actors, to your point, are in other places too. So, Sarah, tell us about um, how we have a window into some of the dysfunction at Twitter. 
Ooh, another hot topic, right? <laughs> like, all I feel like we've been talking about for the past six months is just the <laughs> chaos that's unfolding on, at Twitter underneath Elon Musk's reign. But today there was a big update, a lawsuit from six former employees essentially calling out Elon Musk for creating a culture in which Twitter was not being held accountable financially for a lot of its bills. Let me read you one of the statements from this lawsuit. It's pretty damning. It says, Plaintiff Hawkins, which is one of the people who is suing Twitter, was forced to resign after Musk and his transition team fundamentally changed the nature of her job and threatened her professional reputation by directing Twitter to breach its license, uh, leases and essentially steal space from its landlords. Can you imagine? Elon Musk doesn't pay rent, one member of the transition team told Hawkins, the plaintiff. Another member of the transition team put it more bluntly, and they said, Elon told me he would only pay rent over his dead body. Elon Musk doesn't pay rent? Allison, why? We've, well, Who made him mayor of no rent? Well, that's because Elon Musk is running a company that's hemorrhaging ad revenue right now. It's been marked down by Fidelity and other investors as losing more than half of its value because the business is crumbling underneath Elon Musk. Now, I'm actually hopeful that the business can return to an upswing. I mean, they just hired a brand new CEO who's credible. And Elon Musk is a talented you know, entrepreneur. But at the end of the day, it doesn't excuse not being able to pay rent, not paying vendors. And these are all things we've been tracking have been going on for months. But landlords don't care about the business and whether you... He's a billionaire. Yeah, he can't pay rent. He's one of the richest men in the, yeah. in the world. Correct. But you know what? He can also just go raise money. I reported a few months ago that uh, Ari Emanuel and his company, Endeavor Holdings, was one of the companies that had invested in Twitter once it became private. We don't know which other companies or which other investors might be investing in Elon Musk. But that's the thing when you're a private company. You know, yes, you might be having financial struggles. Just go raise some more money. So I think that Twitter right now is in this weird spot where, yes, they've got a lot of lawsuits, but this is what Elon Musk does, right? He Lawsuits are like part of his business model. He takes risk. He does crazy things. He takes the, the force of the lawsuits. He raises more money and it goes away. You still have to pay rent. But rents are coming down in San Francisco as well, as I understand it. <laughs> but Elon doesn't so pay rent himself, right? Doesn't he not have a, a permanent uh, address? He well, right now a... he's sleeping at Twitter, pretty much. Yeah, but, true. I mean, he's... He couch surfs, right? I yes. mean, maybe he's trying to apply <laughs> well, that mean, strategy me, to Twitter. Let me actually, to that point, bring up one more thing that came out in the lawsuit today, which was absolutely wild. It said that Musk wanted to add a bathroom next to his office so that he didn't have to wake up his security team and cross half the floor to use the bathroom in the middle of the night. I mean, in one regard, I mean, I guess that's courteous to your security well, why team. Why do you have a security team in, in your office? Who's well, trying to kill him in his office? I mean, I think there's a lot of paranoia, right? He's laying off tons of people. He's doing things that are putting people in precarious enough positions that they are suing him. And so it doesn't shock me that he's bringing security with him wherever he goes. But what I think this whole lawsuit points to and what that quote points to is just the fact that the culture within Twitter is chaos right now. <laughs> Not paying bills, people suing the company. I mean, again, I'm hopeful that it can get better. But until then, we're just going to have a lot of fun watching it. I think if you're hiring security to protect yourself from your employees, you may want to rethink some of your managerial skills. That's all I'm saying. Sarah, thank you very much. That was great stuff. Okay. Uh, Some communities across the country are desperate for migrant workers to keep their economies running. Miguel has extensive reporting on this story, and he's going to share it next. Cities are still scrambling to place asylum seekers who have suddenly showed up in their neighborhoods. More than a dozen New York counties issuing states of emergency 
in response to New York City's plans to relocate migrants outside of city limits. But Miguel Marquez has been talking to people all over the country who want and need immigrants in their communities. So, Miguel, tell us where these communities are and what are they saying to you? Uh, you know, for all the chaos on the border, yeah. uh, the reality is is that this country needs more migrants, more immigrant laborers. Uh, so if you look at the Midwest mainly, uh, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, there's enormous need for uh, workers there. And a lot of these places, Mahoning Valley, Youngstown, this is a place that was hit so hard during uh, when, when manufacturing went away. They're now projecting that they're going to need 20,000 workers in the next 10 years or so. And it's all it's it's unskilled, but also skilled workers that they're looking for. And one of the things that they're doing is going to the immigrant community, migrant community, and trying to find workers there, advertising for workers, both overseas and and people who may be here now. The problem with all of this is that uh, the, the the visa situation is just very very difficult for them to overcome. And as you as as the political class sort of focuses on that the chaos at the border it makes it much more unlikely that but they're going to But let's talk about this, Miguel, because in other words, undocumented migrants who show up seeking asylum or, or <clears> not, or can't, can they be useful in these communities the, or they, no? They, they could not, unless they have some sort of way to work at some point, unless there's some sort of pathway to work. And, and keep in mind, half, there's what, 12 million illegal uh, immigrants in this country right now. About half of them came in over the border illegally, entered some way illegally, the other half came in legally, overstayed their visas, and are just here. So what, what chambers of commerce and companies say is that they need more, more migrant laborers, more, more people to do the sort of work, both skilled and unskilled. The, you know, there's, there's a company in Minnesota that is looking for uh, Mexican workers with four-year degrees to do Agriculture, you know, higher end agricultural uh, stuff, animal husbandry. Love saying animal husbandry. Uh, <laughs> Say uh, it as much as you want here. <laughs> uh, so there's a, there's a great need for both skilled and unskilled workers. Okay, well, why doesn't Governor Abbott send buses of migrants? And I understand that these are not necessarily documented, but while they wait for their asylum process, why doesn't he send them to um, Ohio? Well, I mean, think they're sending buses are going to cities everywhere, not just New York, but they. They don't. They can't work legally. That's that's a federal issue. So the federal government would have to change those rules. That would have to be a a, a massive change in the way that we allow uh, migrants to come to this country and get work visas and do the sort of stuff that they need that they that companies uh, and states need. I understand. I mean, as we know, there are some asylums people who have filed for asylum and then they are out mm-hmm. on the street or wherever in the community awaiting the adjudication process, and that can sometimes take months or longer. Years. 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 And they need to work, and companies need them need workers. Mm-hmm. So maybe during that waiting time, Congress could do something. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Good luck. Me, I know. Michal and I were talking about this before. I mean, the system is so broken. And it's funny. I mean, it's something that Republicans and Democrats alike recognize, that they yeah. need to reform the immigration system and they need to do it in a massive way. And of course, we saw a lot of attention go to this after Title 42 was lifted last week with some changes, but lifted last week. Um, The problem is they are so far apart because, you know, to get anything bipartisan these days, specifically something like immigration reform that has been, it's kind of been, it's been the issue that has plagued Every party, every Congress for years now, they just can't find a way to do this, but it is so necessary. And I mean, Miguel's totally right. Like, this is the H-1B visa process. The whole visa process um, has long 
been very broken. And there's a lot of other things they need to deal with as well. But I know from my conversations with people in Congress, as much as they want to try to do it, they are very far from having anything. And the, the country is aging. Happen. All these states are aging. Minnesota, for instance, uh, uh, right now, about 80, over 80 percent of the, the working age uh, population there is foreign born. 60, is right? 60 percent is native born of the working age population in Minnesota. And Minnesota's looking out years ahead and they're like, we're going to need a lot more workers. And it would be very easy just to say, oh, well, here's a, here's a, a huge number of workers who are, are more than willing to do it, but it's going to take federal laws that, that will be very hard to do because of that chaos, because it's become such a hot political issue. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see how they get, get it done. Um, Jeremy, isn't it interesting because, as you know, Republicans um, give President Biden a lot of grief about this. But in many ways, his policies now, since Title 42 expired, are more stringent and actually stricter than what Title 42 allowed. Yeah, in, in some ways, right? It, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit nuanced in the sense that Title 42 allowed them to quickly expel people who were seeking asylum without even asking questions and and. Um, except for a few exceptions. Title VIII now, in the way that they have this, uh, allows for the expulsion of people who uh, arrived at the border illegally. And um, for five years. Like, they can't come back in. I mean, that's right. Th- and there are, there are more, more severe consequences now, but there are also more There are some extenuating c- circumstances There are some extenuating well, yeah. circumstances, some areas where there are more opportunities now to try and seek that asylum claim, even though it's very difficult to actually prove that uh, asylum claim. Um, yes, and also the proposal that you must apply for asylum in the country you're transiting correct, through correct. before you get to the U.S. That seems. And, and while it's true that in the uh, you know in, in last week since this new policy has gone into place, we haven't seen that big surge that we were expecting. Some administration officials are still saying, "Hang on, we don't know exactly what the full extent is," because a lot of migrants who are in Mexico right now, northern Mexico, the 150,000 or so, they are waiting to see if indeed those policies are as stringent as they are. And remember, all of this could also be undone by the courts. There's already lawsuits that have been filed against these new policies. And if those come down, you're going to see a surge right. uh, once again. There's also new processes, though, for, for people in their home country. Correct. They've expanded or- legal pathways, uh, particularly for those coming from countries where you've seen large migration right. movements. Right. Venezuela, Nicaragua, Honduras, for example. We'll see if any of that makes a dent in all this. Thank you very much for that reporting. Uh, Okay, up next. On the lookout, our reporters tell us what stories they are looking out for on the horizon. We are back with our fantastic panel of reporters to tell us what stories they are keeping an eye on. We call it On the Lookout. Okay, Jeremy. Okay, well, President Biden is currently in Japan for the G7, as we know, but there is also a case uh, of a lieutenant, Lieutenant Ridge Alconis. He was convicted to three years in a Japanese prison uh, for an incident in which uh, he crashed the car and and killed uh, some individuals. Um, His family says that he was suffering from acute altitude sickness. The Japanese government, though, in the court system, convicted him of negligent driving and sentenced him to three years in prison. This case has gone all the way up to the president of the United States. Um, His family, his his wife has met with uh, President Biden. We know that President Biden raised this case previously at the White House when uh, the Japanese prime minister visited. So I'm looking to see whether or not President Biden has or does raise this case with the Japanese prime minister again, and whether after this trip, if there is any movement on that case. Okay, great. Thank you. Elena. All right. I know we sound like a broken record, but Jeremy (laughs) gave you the White House side. I will give you... 
the congressional side. Yep. It's all about the debt limit. It's uh, really the number one story. It's true. It's the number one story. Everyone else hired. I mean, you can tell that we're both from D.C. We are obsessed with this story. But I also think a lot of people don't recognize just how catastrophic a default would be. And I know everyone thinks that this is going to get resolved like it always does. They wait till the 11th hour and then, you know, wave their magic wand and boom, you avoid a debt crisis. But you never have the first time until you have the first time. And this could be the first time. And I think I keep saying that to people like, yes, it could be. It's unprecedented, but, you know, it could set the precedent. And um, I will just say quickly that we're going to see these negotiations continue over the weekend. Biden comes back from his trip on Sunday. They want to have McCarthy said they want to have a a deal and a bill on the floor by next week in order great. to get this done. We will, I don't know if that's going to happen. Okay. <laughs> I'm not so sure. <laughs> You've cautioned us. Okay, great. We'll, we will look I think you'll that. probably be talking about this again. I suspect Miguel. I will be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm always watching Ukraine. Um, I just, it, I just think it's the one of, if not the most important story in the world happening right now. And the pace of attacks has really picked up there. Uh, and I'm just, I'm, I'm watching every morning to see what the Ukrainians are doing and when it, uh, seems that their counteroffensive will begin in earnest. The, the number of strikes beyond their territory that they control is getting greater. The, the Russians have been uh, increasing their attacks, their rocket attacks, uh, and it seems that all the pieces are starting to fall into place for you, the Ukrainians. So it's very interesting to watch. Okay. Sarah, you have one second. Go. ESPN <laughs> is looking into whether or not they're going to move all of its cable programming onto streaming, which would have a huge impact on the way that we consume not just sports, but all TV. I don't think it's going to happen for a few years, but the fact that they're preparing for it is a huge seminal moment for the TV industry. Thank you all. Fantastic stories. Really appreciate you guys. And tomorrow on CNN This Morning, meet the 16-year-old pickleball phenom who's not only beating boys her age with some of the sports top men and making big bucks while she's at it. Thanks so much for watching us tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.